0: I wanna add my welcome, uh, appreciate you being here, just good to um, just be together on a cold Sunday morning, right, um, my is Barry, I'm one of the pastors here, uh, it's an honor uh, to be sharing, uh, no one's worthy, I am not worthy, it's only through God's grace this can happen, I trust that your worship time has already been uh, fruitful, I hope you found it softening, man, I have, and by the way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you assignment, an assignment, even before we get started, <clears throat> sometime today and maybe track down the songs that we have already sung and we'll probably be singing because those songs are at the very heart of what's gonna be shared sermon wise this morning. So if I can get out of the way and let the word do the work, create yourself a worship moment later today you will you will you will you will have a drill down moment like maybe you've never had I, I just feel like god's prompting me to share that and to ask see Kyle or any anybody who's been involved in the worship will get a playlist to you somehow some way i think that's cool so let's jump in um so we are moving through a series on the essentials of rest um, and, and how that contrasts with the world that we live in. We're trying to emphasize rest and, and we're in the middle of a world that does everything but emphasize rest. And we're calling it the essentials of rest. And of course, one of the key essentials of rest from a spiritual standpoint, from a church standpoint, is quite simply the word of God. You can't take rest seriously if you don't take seriously the role that the Word of God plays in rest. And there's a couple simple, easy reasons why that's the case. Number one, we hear better from God when we're in a resting state. But number two, when we hear from God, it creates rest. So do you see this nice self-perpetuating cycle that gets started? We hear from God, It creates rest. We're resting, we hear from God. And the cycle just goes and goes and goes. But the problem is, it's so very easy to be on our own hamster wheels of cycles. And these cycles that our hamster wheels create, and you know the picture I'm painting, right? When I say hamster wheel, I know, I know we got some hamster lovers out there. Um, those cycles from our own hamster wheels we're getting to, they have nothing to do with rest. They have nothing to do with the things of God. And the longer that we're on these hamster wheels, the darker our lives become. And then the harder it is to jump off the hamster wheel. So how do we stop the hamster wheel cycle? How do we stop that and jump into the word of God rest cycle? How do we mimic what Micah said in in the passage we looked at? How do we sit in darkness, but all of a sudden we see God is our light? We see the light of God. Well, let me ask you a question. How many have ever sent a love letter? Might seem a little bit nonsequitous, but it's not. And think back to your third grade days. You know, okay, so maybe you didn't have, maybe you texted stuff in your third grade days, but did you ever send a love note of any kind? And you can give a sheepish, yeah, maybe, you know, okay, yeah, I see, I see some of those hands. So I did. I did. Third grade, man. It was bad. I have no shame. It was, it was your classic. Checkbox yes no you know it was it was classic and so I wrote it down Don, Donna Emrick was her name cutest girl in the class of course you know I've got good taste and so I'm, I'm sitting in my row and I write it and, and I write it and I made you know I wrote the check mark checkbox and I probably made it bigger than the no checkbox and and uh, folded up. Give it to her. She sits in the row right behind me. Give it to her. Then I turn around and act like nothing happened. You know. Well, then I see her in the lunch line. You're in the lunch line. I mean, that's where everything happens. You know, so she comes up to me. She said, hey, I got your letter. I'm like, well, I know I gave it to you. Um, I didn't say that. I thought that. And then she said, I didn't know whether to rip it into shreds or take it home and put it under my pillow. Yeah, I'm like what? You know, my, my little third grade mind could not grab that. And I think it might've scarred me for a little while. And, um, but she eventually said yes. Yeah, and so we dated, you know, third grade. dated. however you date. By the way, it dawns me, Reed's in third grade. My son is in third grade. I can't, don't tell him I did this, all right? But I, I can't imagine him going to this. Oh, anyway, we even then made the jump into fourth grade. That's the toughest move in the book, you know, jumping across the summer into fourth grade, but it didn't last, didn't last past them. Funny side note, probably 10 or 15 years ago, bumped into Donna Emery. I've used this little story in, in some things, actually in a book that I had the privilege to write. And I, I mentioned to her about this and, you know, she remembered it. And I said, do you remember how you answered me when she goes, I remember making you work for it. <laughs> so I don't know. That's, <laughs> this is, but again, I think that kind of scarred me. But now let me ask you this question. How many have ever received a love letter? You know, know, a love letter from someone you want to hear from, let's qualify that. A love letter from a crush, a love letter from someone you've had a crush on yourself. When you get that letter, what do you do with it? Or text or however you receive it. Um, You read it over and over, right? You read between the lines, you read through the lines, you read around, around the lines. If you're a girl, you share it with your friends. And, you know, if you're a guy, not so much. If you're a guy, you're like, hey, got a letter. It's pretty cool. You know, that's it. <laughs> but you, you, you pour over it. You pour over it. And, and eventually, then what do you do? You respond. And if it's someone you want to hear from, you say yes. Now, backing up, if you're the one who sent the love letter, you hope that's what's going on. You hope it's being read over and over and ingested and and taken the way you meant it to be taken. And then you desperately hope for a response. Well, here's the thing. This is not an original analogy and you've probably heard it, but have you thought lately about how much this book, this Bible is a love letter to us? Have you thought lately how this book which took over a 1,000 years to put together with over 40 different authors. Have you thought lately how this book that is a little bit bigger than the entire, or a little smaller actually than the entire Harry Potter series, a little bit bigger than Les Mis, and they get a Dan McIntyre reference in here, a little bit bigger than the Lord of the Rings trilogy, <laughs> including The Hobbit. That's the size of it. But this book, this book is God's love letter to us. He has told us how much he loves us. He's told us about his family, his son. He's told us why we'd make such a great relationship. And there are two things that are happening on, happening from God's perspective. Number one, he is hoping that we will experience it as the love letter that it is that we will ingest it as we would a love letter. But number two, he is patiently waiting for a response. I don't know if you've ever sent a love letter and not gotten a response, that's happened to me too. Um, That's not a great spot to be. But here's what's happening from our perspective. While God is hoping we will ingest this as the love letter it's meant to be and while he is waiting patiently for a response, here's what's happening on our end of things. Right now, the Bible is probably more widely distributed than it ever has been in any time in history. But other research is showing that we're also at a time when the church is the least engaged in scripture. There are people who measure this, Barna, Gallup even, and, and their stats show this. And interestingly, it does show a little uptrend through the pandemic. We became a little hungrier, a little thirstier, My hope and prayer is that we will ride that momentum. Let's use that. Maybe you've had that experience as well. But here's the thing, while the church is disengaged with scripture really more than ever, our culture is moving into what seems to be an epically dark time. From my perspective, as I've been interpreting and ingesting news, I feel like right now we have Rampant devaluing of human life. The mass shootings that we're seeing and hearing about way too often, the single shootings, the crime waves across cities. These last few headlines of groups of teenagers just ransacking parts of cities or malls or shopping centers. And two, if you try to take a personal stand on anything, or a personal stand on anything having to God, having to do with God, you you will be canceled. And also, to add to all this, artificial intelligence is coming for your job. <laughs> so there's all kinds of fun things happening that I actually believe are creating possibly a type of darkness that we haven't seen for a long, long time. But there is, um, and of all these cultural things weighing on us, not only do we have these cultural things bringing darkness into our minds, we also have our own darkness, our own individual elements of darkness, our anxieties, our disappointments, our frustrations, our seeming needs to produce, to accomplish, or our need to be at a certain point in our careers by a certain age, or a need to be validated by our peers. And before long, the world that we're in, the hamster wheel that we are on, is giving us metrics to measure by that have absolutely nothing to do with God and do nothing but perpetuate the dark world that we're in. And you know, there's actually a time in history that I think can be a little bit instructive for us. In the early Middle Ages, kind of mid fifth to sixth century till about the 10th century, there's a period of what historians have called the Dark Ages. Now that phrase has come to be a little bit politically incorrect, as I guess they're not using it so much, they're just kind of calling it the middle or early ages, but there's a reason why it was termed the dark ages. It's because this is a period of time when there was no creativity, history was not being recorded, things were not being invented, there was very little art, but there was one key dynamic. Scripture was in the hands of the elite. At this time, scripture, the word of God, this love letter that God has sent to us was in Latin. The only people who knew Latin were the priests and the aristocracy. It was the priests who would interpret the scriptures and tell the people what it says. Um, And the people themselves were at the mercy of that. Thankfully, along come some people like Tyndale and Wycliffe, these names that you'll recognize that began to translate the Bible at the cost of their lives, from the language of the elite to the language of the people. And at the same time, we also have Gutenberg creating this little thing called the printing press, the first thing he prints, a Bible. So suddenly not only are is the, is the, is the, scripture, the scriptures being translated into languages people can understand, it's being disseminated. And it's being disseminated and now suddenly light is coming into the hearts of people in the middle of the dark ages or now at the end of the dark ages and creating light. And this is what led to, I believe, and historians will say, the Renaissance. What led to this explosion of art and invention. It also led to the enlightenment, which began to be a little less faith-based, but also led to the Reformation. Martin Luther is in on that. And here we are today because of that. What brought that, what changed that It was people being exposed finally to the love letter that God had sent and creating in them light, light in a way that brings salvation and brings this incredible aspect of thought and it gets us out of darkness, out of the heaviness into what God is calling us to. But here's the thing, I know that personally, we all have periods of our own personal dark ages whether it's a period of time or whether it's layers of things that we're involved with, we're on our hamster wheels and it's during this time we become very susceptible to deception. We can't see beyond our own flesh. We're reacting to things out of flesh and I gotta be honest with you, that's just very tiring. It is not restful. And I feel sometimes that we're, we're not well equipped to be able to see out of her own darkness. You know, there's times when you've had a power outage or maybe you've blown a circuit and circuit breaker and you gotta go down the basement or you gotta go into a dark room and you grab a flashlight. So you grab a flashlight and you're going through the room. You know, to be honest with you, it's still a little spooky, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little spooky having a flashlight in a dark room because you're still gonna stub your toe a little bit as well. You're gonna step on a Lego, you know, you're gonna step on you know all kinds of different things. Eventually you get to your spot and maybe you flip the breaker or you get to what you're trying to do. But there's nothing better than finally having full illumination with all the lights on. Because when we do, we see through the shadows. The shadows are actually gone. We see deception for what it is. We see see things around us that are trying to trip us. We will possibly see the Lego piece before we step on it. Probably not, but there's a possibility. Um, You can tell. I've stepped on some Lego. Um, But I feel sometimes that the flashlight is a little bit like what we're trying to use in our own darkness. It helps us out, but it's not full illumination. Because you know, most of our Bible efforts today, most of our Bible efforts in the church, in the lives of believers can be considered maybe devotional, casual, <laughs> haphazard. And it really is like using a small flashlight to shine in some of the deepest, darkest parts of our lives and in our, and in our homes. You might be able to get through, but you're gonna stub your toe. You're gonna to dos, hit some things, but when the lights are on, we have full illumination. You're pervious to the darkness around you. You see the dark spots that are trying to deceive you and you get courage to do something about it. I believe it's when we approach scripture with love letter intensity, the kind of intensity that we would approach a love letter, when we approach scripture that way, that's when the light bulbs click on. And the light bulbs bring light, but it's not just the light bulbs that click on. We get illumination from God himself. Scripture was built, I believe, so that the more we press in, the more it presses back. It's a little bit like a Jenga game, you know, we know Jenga, right? You, you play the Jenga game. It really is no fun until that thing tips over. You know, that's that's when it's fun. And, and And I feel like sometimes that's what scripture study is a little bit like. We just keep pressing and pressing. If we're approaching it casually, haphazardly, devotionally, we end up quitting before the big wow moment comes. I feel like God's got so much he wants to teach us and show us, but he's designed it so that the more we press in, the more we get back. And we have them, when we do that though, we have these holy wow moments, these light bulb moments. And what I've come to believe and come to know is that illumination, when we have this, these illuminating moments, that's what brings rest. Because that is what our soul is longing for that light from God to, bring a, to move away the darkness, to get us off the, the hamster wheels and get us to a point to where we actually rest in what God has for us and what he wants to do in our lives. Now, there's a moment here, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna mention something. This, it, there's, it's possible that right now, all of this talk about love letter and intensity in the Bible is create, is actually not creating rest, it's creating anxiety. Because <laughs> you're going, I don't have time. I don't have time. I'm I'm not a reader. Uh, I'm way behind on Bible knowledge anyway. Uh, You know, all these things start flooding into our minds. We start having guilt already for not being where we'd like to be. There's a word I just want to use to you, and it's in the great words of theologian Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, probably soon to be quarterback of the New York Jets. Relax. (laughs) Relax. I want you to relax. And here's why. Nearly everything of the love letter... It's not about the letter. It's about the love. And when you respond to a love letter, you're not necessarily just responding to the letter. You're responding to relationship. And this is what it's about. It's about love. And that's where the rest is. You know, nearly every book of the Bible has some segment in it in which that part of the Bible talks about the Bible, where God's word talks about God's word and it talks about how god 's word is honored or how we are to ingest it this morning for just these next few minutes we 're going to drop in on three different spots for god 's word in essence talks about god 's word now here 's the thing I probably could have made a sermon about with any one of these, but I feel it 's kind of helpful to actually see a cross section through the different areas of Scripture of how this written love letter is to be taken and how it's to be brought into our lives. So we're going to drop in on Deuteronomy, we're going to drop in on the Psalms, and we're going to drop in on the Gospel of John. And as we do this, my prayer is that we'll pick up on hints on how God is asking us to experience his love letter, but then also how experiencing it that way will bring illumination and rest to our souls and to our bodies, each spot that we drop in on is going to give us a little bit of a different perspective, a little bit of as one might be a little heavier on love letter intensity and another might be a little heavier on uh, illumination. First passage we're going to look at is in Deuteronomy. It's actually Deuteronomy four, and then also Deuteronomy six. Want to take a second to turn to that, or, or turn your turn your Bible app on? Uh, we're going to have it on the screen here too in just a second. But it's here at this point when we hit Deuteronomy, you know, God has already given Israel the Ten Commandments. So they've got the Ten Commandments. They also already have the, 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 the kind of a written code about sacrifices, about feasts about the tabernacle, about how they're to interact with each other in community, about how they're to take care of strangers. So they've got this, this is kind of what they have and what they're studying, what they're learning and what they're knowing. And then we get to the the book of Deuteronomy, which has given to them in a moment, when Israel, they have already now done their 40 years of wandering, wandering in the wilderness. They've had their punishment. They're on the banks of the Jordan River getting ready to move into the promised land. It's a little bit like that first day of camp, okay? we're First day of camp, here are the rules. You know, if you don't obey the rules, we're calling your parents, we'll take you out. So that's kind of how this is. And that's what's being said. That's why even Deuteronomy is called the, the second law. It's a review of all that has happened. Well, there are several times when God's written words are highlighted and brought out. And that's what we want to look at. So first Deuteronomy four, verses five through eight, and then we'll look at Deuteronomy six. See, this is Moses speaking to the people. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who then when they hear these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And then we jump to Deuteronomy 6, verses 3 to 7. And this is, you'll, you'll recognize this as part of the great Shema. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And it goes on a little further from there as to how they are to be treating this. Do you see how Israel is expected to interact with God's love letter? Did you have some things resonate in your ear and in your heart? Learn them, keep them, have them on your heart, do them, teach them, make them a part of the fabric of your life. Make them a part of your daily conversation. Talk about them when you go to bed. Talk about them when you wake up. Talk about them when you're taking a nap. (laughs) And then here's the payoff. Here's the payoff from approaching that way. They will become a people who God can use to be a blessing to all nations. They will become a people who reflect God's traits. They will not be enticed by the gods of the other nations. They will also gain respect from the nations around them. Did you catch that? The nations around them will say, what great nation is there that has a God so near as it is the Lord our God to us whenever we call upon him. This will then also enable them to enjoy long life in the land of milk and honey. I love that. It's great for cereal lovers, you know, but it's like they will get to enjoy that. But the reason why they get to enjoy long life in that land is because God will be able to keep using them When they quit obeying and teaching these decrees, they will not reflect the traits of God. God will not be able to use them. That's why the fourth commandment, the commandment to the children to honor your father and your mother, and it's the one that comes with a promise. You'll live long. And I think later it even says you'll live long in the land. So the reason why, why you're to obey them, because they're teaching you these righteous decrees, these written words, the love letter of God when you obey what they say, I'm gonna be able to keep this cycle going and keep using you. The people around them will respect them and will honor them. So how does that translate to us? How does Deuteronomy four and six translate into our daily daily lives? Well, for one, I think, you know, we have to think about this. If we have a Bible or whatever we have, if we have a Bible, it's not something that we keep in our car so that we can have it from Sunday to Sunday. I had a stretch of life. Well, if I keep it in my car, I won't forget it. It also means I'm not looking at it Monday through Saturday. It's not an app that's always at the bottom of our app usage list. It's to be integrated into the fabric of our lives, of our days. We're to know it, we're to keep it, we're to do it. But it's not just knowledge. We're to let it seep from our brain to our heart. I love how it says, let this be on your heart. And then what's our payoff? What's the payoff when we, when we ingest it that way? Well, When we do this, we reflect the traits of God. Remember, God is conforming us to the image of his son. Romans tells us that. So it helps when we give God a head start. If we know what we're to be conformed to, that makes it a soft landing when he does start to change us and to move us into that image of his son. And the other thing that's kind of interesting to me too, there is something inside of us, our heart, our soul, and there's something that scripture latches onto inside of us. So when scripture begins to change us, it really is, it's an inside job. You know, there's something that happens in, in that great way. There's also that great passage in Titus 2 where the bond servants are told to obey their masters, to don't steal, to make sure they're trustworthy. Why? So the teachings of the gospel are attractive. So when we allow this to move and seep into our minds and into our hearts, we begin to reflect the traits of God and we actually make God attractive to the world around us, to the place around us. And, and when we do that, when we obey what's put before us, the obedience itself brings protection. With Israel, they will get to stay in the land because God will be able to use them. With us, we get to enjoy the rest from protection, the relief that comes from obedience, which, come, which leads to the protection. If you had that moment when you're driving along and all of a sudden you see a policeman and he's sitting there and he's got you dead to rights and you know, whether it's the laser gun or the radar and, and what do you do? What's the first thing we do? We look at the speedometer. You look at the speedometer, you're going the speed limit. How do you feel? <sighs> relief, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's what obedience does. It brings us that point of relief because we are, in the preservation of being obedient. And when we are in that spot, in that zone, we're not outside on the treadmill, trying to find and get things that that don't belong in our hearts and in our minds. We're enjoying the peace that comes from protection. Next, the Psalms. So we're going to, you know, the Psalms come many generations later. And by this time, they also, they do have the written law, the book of the law, the law of Moses uh, that that gets talked about a lot in scripture. Um, They also may have some of the writings with regard to Joshua's work. So they've got some things that they're looking at. They've got some things that they're obeying and that they're reading and they're using in worship a lot. So in Psalm 19, we're going to look at Psalm 19, verses seven through eight. And then Psalm, we're going to jump 100 Psalms over to Psalm 119, verses 105, 145, and 148. But we'll start here with Psalm 19. We've got it on the screen as well. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Just think, just let yourself ponder how Scripture is described. Now, on to Psalm 119, verse 105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 145 With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. Verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. If you've not been introduced to Psalm 119, let this be the day you are. The longest chapter in the Bible, every verse is about the Bible, basically, about the word of God, his statutes, his commands, his testimonies, 176 verses. About every verse has something about scripture. The other thing that's interesting about every verse also has some kind of action related to how we're to approach scripture. Um, it has some kind of action as to how we're to get into God's love letter. Interesting insight, and Eric and I have gone back around on this a little bit as well. Of all the verbs and actions that Psalm 119 uses to describe scripture, it never says read it. Every word that's used has something more to do, it's like reading is a given, has way more action. It's using action words like seek after, speak of, take comfort in. The two most common action words, meditate and keep. Especially keep, which means take it on your own, make it as your own and obey it, do what it says. But that word meditate, I ran across something kind of interesting and I've got Eugene Peterson to thank for for this. Um, He wrote a book called Eat This Book, awesome book about eating scripture. And he he pointed out that the same Hebrew word that the psalmist uses for meditate is the same Hebrew word that Isaiah uses in 31 verse four when he says, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. The word growls is the same Hebrew word as meditate. And Peterson painted this picture. So here's this lion. He's just he's ready to devour something, ready to eat it. He's growling over it because he's hungry. He's salivating. He's, he's ready to ingest. And it's like, th- that's, that's how we meditate. And he brings up the point that the word med- our English word meditate might be a little bit too tame. We picture sitting in a chapel with the Bible on our laps thinking, you know, go a step further think in terms of how's this thing gonna feed me? Where am I hungry? I'm gonna salivate. I'm expecting this to do something. The lion is expecting his prey to fill him. I'm expecting something to happen when I get into scripture and when I get on it. And so one Psalm 119 gives us the action as to how we're to enjoy the love letter, but Psalm 19 gives us the payoff. It tells us that our eyes are enlightened our soul is revived. There's an amazing thing that happens when, that, when our soul is revived. I don't know if you've ever read about how much our physical bodies restore and rejuvenate while we sleep. It's amazing. Our cells reproduce, our cells change themselves over, inflammation is, goes down, so much happens when we sleep. The same is true when we give our souls the rest that they want. And when we expect that to happen, that's what I think leads to the rest that it's asking for, the repair that it's asking for. There was, um, in, in, well, also then in Psalm 119, we see that he gives us a light, it lights our path when we approach it that way. I had two little times in my, um, well, more than two, but in my grief journey, and I try not to dip into this too much, but um, there were a couple of times when I was in two very dark places. And in both cases, scripture pulled me out. Place number one was just simply it wasn't. It was early on in the journey and of, of loss and grief. And for those who you know you may be visiting, I, I had a period of time I was a widower, um, and I began to ask a question. I was like, "What if scripture overpromises and underdelivers?" And even worse, I've been an advocate of scripture my entire ministry life. What if I've oversold it? What if it doesn't happen? Well, I, I I began to have a little bit of a crisis of belief and I just thought, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna study some people in scripture. I'm gonna study some characters because I know there's some people in scripture that are going went through worse stuff than I am. I was led to John the Baptist. Talk about somebody who went through some worse stuff. I don't know, if I, maybe I've said this. You know, when we're in heaven, if we're driving cars, we'll know we're behind John the Baptist because he'll have a bumper sticker that says, life sucks, then you're beheaded. You know, that's John the Baptist's life. I'm like, I want to follow him. So there was a moment when he was in prison, he was in jail on the precipice of being beheaded. He sent an entourage out to, to, to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? Because I think, you know, John's like basically going, I'm getting ready. I'm going through some pretty rough stuff right now. But if you're the one, I'm in. This, if this is real, I can do this. And that's when he sent the entourage, they, they asked Jesus, you're the one, and Jesus sends back, hey, tell them, tell them what you see. The sick are healed, the lame are healed. Tell them what you see. And I realized I was asking that exact same question. Is this real? Is this real? If it is, I can do this. I can do this. My, 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 my moments of meditation brought light and rest to my soul and pulled me out of that. A little bit later on in this, in this same journey, I had a day when I actually I, I, I articulated to myself out in the open, Just I, I just said, God, I do not know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what it was, if I was on a study, but something led me to a moment in Israel's history. Later that day, I, I, I opened up scripture and I, I see a verse and this verse says this, Israel says, we do not know what we're doing. And then it follows up, but we will keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. And all of a sudden it struck me, if I can keep a line of sight open between me and God, if I can keep myself from not going around a corner and losing sight of God, I can do this. I can plow through this. But it was the scripture itself that brought that light, the light then that brought me rest, that brought me hope that I can plow through this and get to this. And in both of those situations, the word of God calmed me down. It gave me light and it calmed me down. The third spot we're going to look at, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Now, by this time, of course, Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is the Word of God. Anything Jesus says is the Word of God. By this time, when Jesus is here, the Old Testament has kind of pretty much been put together. The Septuagint is there. That's probably what many of Jesus and his followers used, which was the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew scriptures and so a lot of the Old Testament was in place. That's what they're using and, and so those are the things, but also, also anything that Jesus said was the word of God any commandment, any instruction. And so in John 14, verses 21 through 23, and by the way, this comes also in Jesus' great big farewell address with his disciples. John 13 starts with the, the, uh, the, the washing of the disciples' feet and John 17 ends with the prayer for unity. This is right smack in the middle of that. John 14, verses 21 through 23. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, I love this, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Let that just rattle around in your mind for a second. Jesus is very clear as to how we are to engage his commandments, what you can also call God's love letter to us. We're to have them and we're to keep them. And that word have, it basically means to own, to take it as your own. It also means to hold fast. It's like just picture yourself on the on the side of a freight train. I don't know why you'd be on the side of a freight train, but just picture that, and it's going fast. You're holding on for dear life. You're holding on. That's what having them is. And then, of course, he says to keep them, do them. That also has has a sense of attend to them very carefully, and don't make these just an intellectual exercise. So we have them, we keep them. Then what's the payoff? Man, <laughs> Jesus says, I'll show myself. The one who has these commands and keeps them, I will show myself to them. And here's the thing, that's not an end time showing. That word that's used, it actually means kind of a physical conspicuous manifestation. Now, he will show himself. And then when and I feel like that's, that's a little bit of why work camps and mission trips are so powerful in our lives because we're probably obeying a command, take care of the least of these, love our neighbors. We're doing something that Jesus has already commanded. And usually when we're on those experiences, we ramp up our time with the love letter. You know, we have, our devotional time is stronger. We start in the morning maybe or something, but we are more intense with scripture, more intense with his commands. And then somewhere in there, Jesus shows up. He shows himself to us and that's what leaves us wanting more. But what Jesus is describing here is not a work camp experience. It's daily life. It's where we—it's it's being able to see him in our, in our coming and in our going and in our sleeping and in our napping. But here's the thing. There's even more. I love this. And I think this is where this scene, this scene actually gets to the heart of what all this is about. Jesus says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. And then he goes on and says a little more, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we come to him and make our home with him. Now, here's the thing. We know Jesus loves us. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Everybody's already loved. So what is it that's going on that he also loves us more? Well, I, th- I really think there's something special going on here. There's some kind of special outpouring that we get to experience, an outpouring of love, an outpouring of what it is, that God, is um, that God wants to do in our lives, and then Jesus says, he will make his home with us. I want that kind of familiarity. I want to be familiar with Jesus to the point, do I just feel like I'm living with him? And that's, that's rest, that is rest. So what does this look like? What does it look like to to have love letter intensity in a way that brings illumination, in a way that brings rest? How can we see this in our day? Well, I want us to remind us, I want to remind us that it's not about knowing the letter. It's about knowing God. Just a few years ago, I ran across uh, my teenage Bible. I hadn't seen it in forever. And I ran across it and I was just flipping through and I looked in the back and, and I found something interesting. And, and I've got a picture of it here too, in fact. So this is, this is also um, uh, giving myself up here a little bit, but you see these colors? If you're close to the screen, you might be able to tell it's a little bit of a color coding system. You know, Love is going to be these verses. Actually, I broke love down to a verb and a noun. Prayer is going to be these verses. Power is these verses. Any verse that I'm going to underline with this color. So this is like when I'm an early teen. So, I've been trained in inductive Bible study. Now, this is how I study scripture, which is with colors, with symbols. So you can use, see patterns and you can see what God is doing. I got a master's in biblical studies. This is how I study scripture. I had no idea I was onto something when I was like 15 years old. But you also see some of the issues I was dealing with, right? If you look really close at that, that's a, that's a fun, like I said, I'm putting myself out there. Um, so then, uh, but here's the thing. I don't share that to say to you, to show you what a devout teen I was because I was not. I was, a, I was a dude, I was a football player, all this kind of stuff. Here's the thing, I was not a reader. I, could, I didn't like to read. Bonus reading meant no reading. And yet here I am pouring into scripture in this particular way. I kind of figured out how to leapfrog over reading and to ingest it. Because what this is illustrating to me now as an adult, many decades later, I wanted to know God. I wanted to know him. And I knew that this is how I would know him. And I knew that of all the things that God could have said, really, this has kind of been boiled down. This is what he wanted to make sure we got. So I just share that to say to you, it's not about just the reading. It's not about the words. It's about knowing God, because ultimately, which that is about love. A second point, so what I just said was, it's not about knowing the letter, it's about knowing God. Secondly, it's not about quantity, but quality. I want to invite us to move beyond devotional moments. I want us to take seriously that word meditate, growl over it. A.W. Tozer, great pastor, scholar, teacher, he wrote this, there are scribes and there are prophets. Scribes are those who tell other, about other experiences that people had with God. Prophets are those who put themselves in the presence of God and tell people what happened. We need prophets, not scribes. My invitation to us, we need more prophets. We need prophets in our homes. We need prophets in our schools. We need prophets in our church. We need prophets wherever we are, people who are putting themselves in the presence of God, staying there until something happens, responding to his love letter in a way that brings light and rest, and then go from there. I would would invite you to find a spot Find a spot and find a time when you can let this happen. And then one last final thing, and this is nothing but a shameless plug, sign up for the Crave class. (laughs) Here's why I say this, I trust what's going on in that class because what that class is, is helping us experience God's scripture as a love letter to us. Eric gave you a little more detail about it. You know, Even if you can't make the class, even if you're like, I don't know, sign up anyway. Let's just, we wanna be in touch. Because and just, just take, a, take a move, you know. scan the QR code, just sign up. We want to be in touch on how we can better help every one of us experience God's love letter in a way that brings rest. In a moment, we're going to be taking communion. We're going to be breaking bread just as Jesus broke bread with us. You know, I want to go back to the very first thing I said about rest. We hear better from God when we're in a resting state. And when we're in a resting state, we hear from God. When Jesus gave this to us to do, he gave it to us to remember how much he loves us. This morning when you come and rip off the bread and dip it into the wine or the juice and you can see the W or the J on the, on the chalice, let this be your time when you're saying to God when you're responding to his love letter, yes, yes. I want to ingest it in the way that you meant for it to be ingested. I want to respond by just saying yes to your love. If you have not said yes to Jesus, if you're not a believer, um, it, might, it doesn't make sense to come and just, just pray. But if you don't have to be a member here to take part as well, but just uh, we're all welcome to, um, to do that and to give God the big yes. Would you pray with me as our team comes and leads us in worship? Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your attentiveness to uh, telling us about your love for us. Thank you for writing it down for us. I pray, Father, that we will see your word as the love letter that it is. God, we now give you these moments. We give you these moments uh, to say yes to what you've written to us and to accept your rest, to be illuminated by your light. Thank you, God. Amen.